Well, again, good morning. There you go. My name is Jason, and I'm the associate pastor of Community Life here on the Fountain Valley campus. And I am so excited to get to hang out with you guys again today. I got to hang out with you like uh, two months ago to start the series off, to kick the series off. Uh, about the, a couple weeks ago at, the, de- at the, the halfway point. And then today as we close our series, as we're talking about the art of neighboring. And it's been really cool to hear stories of how people are using their skip jars um, to bless this organization or that organization, um, to using their neighbor maps to get to know their neighbor, neighbors and, and throwing parties and all sorts of really cool stuff that God's doing. And it's just been great. Um, you know, I don't know if you know this. So Heidi was up here. Um, didn't Heidi do an awesome job? She was awesome, right, by the way? Yeah, come on. Let's, yeah. And uh, so uh, Heidi uh, told us that we've sponsored 29 girls. I don't know if you know this. The goal and all we had at the start was uh, the goal was 18. That was the goal. And so you're already 10 up. So Heidi and Rose had to like, you know, scatter to find more kids for you guys to love on and to, to give the gospel to through tangible ways. And so it's been really cool. And I want to encourage you, um, if in any way you can partner uh, with the remaining uh, money that we're still hoping to raise to feed the widows and the orphans, it really does uh, make an amazing difference in that community. Uh, maybe, you know, one of the ways that you could do that, by the way, is if you haven't designated your skip jar for something, uh, you can go ahead and bring that in. Um, we'll be glad to pour it out uh, and give you the jar back so you can keep on skipping as a family. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for a good story, right? As for as long as I can remember, you know, I've loved he- hearing stories told. I love telling stories. I love to read stories. I love to watch stories unfold on TV or in movies, you know, um, you know, and I think I've always liked stories, and I, and I think we're wired sort of to like stories because in stories we're taken somewhere, right? We're almost like transported from the, the, the place that we're in, whatever that is, whether it's good or bad, into this uh, place where there's kind of no, no boundaries uh, to our imagination, right? And, and I even find that, like, my favorite songs are stories that are so, in some way attached to things that are bigger in my life. And I don't think I'm the only one like this, right? I I can say with almost absolute certainty, considering that the entertainment industry is roughly a $35 billion industry a year, which I know most of you make in a month, but it's kind of a lot of money. Um, But I can say with almost absolute certainty that you're probably a sucker for a good story too, right? And I think the reason that we're like this is because stories move us past the things that weigh us down into, into experiencing something bigger, something transcendent. And I think stories, I don't know if you, if you think this, but for me, like, I think stories help us navigate issues better than data, right? Raw facts and statistics are okay, but when a story comes in, it makes it real, makes it human. You know, and, and with uh, the, the power of story is all throughout the passage we find ourselves in. So with that in mind, I want to encourage you to grab a Bible or open up your mobile device uh, and your Bible app to John chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> Now, as you're turning there, I want to set the scene for where we find ourselves today uh, in God's story. And uh, where we're at today is, uh, oh, by the way, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one in front of you. It's on page 1065 in those Bibles. And so, uh, so where we find ourselves this morning is in the middle of Jesus doing what he did best in his ministry here on earth. And that is talking to someone he's not supposed to be talking to. Okay, that's where we find ourselves, right? And in this story that I know that's familiar to many of you, 
Um, he, he's, uh, he sent his 12 students called disciples up the road to Chick-fil-A to get some dinner. And, um, and he's sitting by this well, you know, uh, waiting for someone to arrive. He's traveled about 30 miles to get from where he was to where he is now to have this conversation. And so with that in mind, uh, I want you to, to encourage you to follow along with me in uh, John chapter 4, verse 1. And, and by the way, the story's kind of lengthy, but it's a great story, and so I think it kind of goes quickly. So now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. See, that's where I got that from. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks this water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water will get, I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one, who's, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. 
They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I have sent you to reap for what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more people, excuse me, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So there's so much happening here. There's so much going on. There's so much culture, so much context that we could spend like the next two or three hours unpacking it. But for your sake, I decided against it. And uh, so what I want to try to give you is kind of the big ideas, the big kind of things that are going on to give you some handles to be able to grapple with this passage today. And so with that in mind, I want to encourage you to grab your outlines out of your bulletin. Uh, They look like this. And uh, take notes and follow along. You remember way more what you write down than what you listen to. And I want to give you the biggest thing, the overarching idea that's in this passage. We call it our big idea of the day. It's really the sermon in a sentence. And it's the first thing I want you to write down. And it's this, that when my story, excuse me, yeah, when my story lives in God's story, lives are changed. When my story lives in God's story, lives are changed. At the heart of this story, at the heart of what we just read, is Jesus telling the woman stories. And the woman responding with historical data and stories, and they collide in this beautiful moment of life change. And in the first nine verses, we see nuance after nuance of the, of the story of God about to collide with the story of this woman. And in the first three verses, we read about Jesus, of why he even left where he was in the first place. And it's because the religious leaders try to bait him into getting into this theological debate about who should baptize and where and when. And he just says, you know what? Forget it. I'm out of here. Deuces. And so he leaves and he goes to Samaria. Now, verse 4 is really striking because not only is it the shortest verse in the whole passage, but it's also probably the most profound. It says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, you and I, we read that and we're okay with it. But the original audience who read that would have gone, wait a minute. No, 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 that's not right. Something's wrong here. Something's off. This is a clue to something bigger. Now, I want to just try to give you kind of some context here. Let's put a map up here. This is first century Palestine. And while I know that you can read all those little letters, I'm sure, but I'll just help you as we walk through it. And I've got my little laser pointer here. And since I can't point at two things at once, well, I'm only a preacher for goodness sake. And, um, you know, we're going to all look over here, you know, and follow my little red dot, you know, okay, okay, good. We're all with me. So down in the Southern, this is, so it's about 120 miles from down here to all the way up here now. And, uh, And in the most southern part is the region of Judea. And in the most northern part is the region of Galilee and Syria. Now, and dead center in between is Samaria. Now, now you need to just, I need you to just bear with me for a short, like, geography historical lesson, because it really makes a huge difference. And uh, so there's this centuries-old feud going on between the Jews and the Samaritans, of which we'll unpack more as we go along today. Um, But... Now, there were, there were three routes to get from Judea down here to Samaria. 
um, excuse me, to Galilee, right? And only one of them goes through Samaria. The other two, um, and this is actually the normal one that, that Jews would take, especially religious leaders, because they felt like if they got into contact with a Samaritan, they would be considered unclean. They'd have to do a bunch of stuff, and they just didn't want to waste their time with them. And so the normal route they would take, right here's Jerusalem, where my, where my dad is trying to stay still. Hey, come back. Okay, so is right over here. They'd go to the east to Jericho, cross the, the Jordan River to make sure there was water between them and the Samaritans, go up through Perea and the Decapolis, all the way up to, to uh, here, and then recross the Jordan into Galilee. Um, the other way that they would go, this isn't the normal way, but this is another way they'd go, is to the west, to the Emmaus Road, to the coast, walk up the coast to this place right here called Caesarea, which is literally the worst place in Greek culture for, um, for like pagan worship, especially through um, certain, um, let's just say, laying down activities. Um, so, <clears throat> or standing, I guess. And so um, and they would go through Caesarea up, to, up into Galilee. Okay, there, but um, right here, the shortest distance from Judea to Galilee or vice versa is through Samaria. And of course, we all remember from school, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Now, this is, however, not the distance, excuse me, not the route that they would want to take. But John tells us in this really strange detail that Jesus, who was not on a busy schedule, had to go through Samaria. Now, you might be able to say, okay, well, he just wanted to go the short route. He only had two days in his mind. He had some schedule in his mind. But given what happens afterwards, it seems like something is going on that is bigger than just simply uh, geographical proximity and shortness of, uh, of a journey, right? It seems like that, we're, that John is trying to tell us something about the God who is walking, that it's bigger, that, the God, that that God is bigger than 30 miles or 60 miles. That God is bigger than theological debates. That God is bigger than race and ethnicity and geography. That he, he has to, because of who he is, walk through the place you're not supposed to walk through to go 30 miles to have a conversation with one person because he has to be about his father's business, redeeming the world one by one by one. Right? This, this God walks 30 miles through the wrong city to have a conversation with one woman to tell her that there is room in his story, even for her. See, and these verses go on and we're told that Jesus makes his, well, makes his way to this special religious place for the Samaritans called Jacob's Well. And, it, and we're told that he's sitting there because he's tired from the journey. And there's still this one woman who, in the city who's yet to draw water. And she comes at the hottest, um, worst part of the day to, to draw the water, probably because of her lifestyle, because of the way she lives. And she wants to avoid the sneers and the comments and the cutting looks from the people, the other woman, the other women of the town saying, I, I know what kind of woman you are. Stay away from me and my house, right? The kind of comments that make her feel worthless, make her feel less than, right? And, and what happens when she goes on this particular day 
is an experience unlike anything she's probably ever had up to this point, and unlike anything she probably ever had again. And that experience is, is quite simply this. A Jewish man spoke to her. This is unheard of. This does not happen, right? John even tells us, right? Jews and Samaritans are enemies. They shouldn't be having a conversation, let alone a man having a conversation with a woman. And at this point in the story, Jesus begins to invite her more into the bigger picture, right? And he, and he really, in doing so, he, he gives us this first, this first reason that when our story lives in God's story, lives are changed. And it's the next thing I want you to write down. Lives are changed because God's story is bigger than any other plan. <coughs> Excuse me. God's story is bigger than any other plan. See, he doesn't use the other routes, right? The, the Jericho Road or the Emmaus Road. He has to use the wrong route to have a conversation to tell her about something more than a hundred foot well that gives you water from a guy that was, built, that was built from a guy a long time ago. Instead, it's living water. And it doesn't just come from a guy who lived and died. It comes from a living God. And it doesn't just come from a living God. That living God would give it to you and to me and to this woman. And it would become within them an overflowing life that would last forever. See, the feud between these two peoples, the Jews and the Samaritans, was so great that they eventually ended up reinterpreting the scriptures so that it could make sense for both areas of, uh, of Jewish peoples, right? So the, the Jews in Jerusalem, they had a, their, their reinterpretation was that the Messiah, the Christ, would come and he would rescue only them. Only the Jews, because they are God's chosen people. Everyone else can just, you know, figure it out. Now, the Samaritans, since they, uh, since they actually are Jewish <coughs> and, and have this Messiah story built into their, their DNA, their, their, their worldview, they end up reinterpreting it and calling him not the Messiah, but the Teheb, or the Teheb, which means rescuer or, or redeemer. And the Teheb would come after the Messiah came for the Jews to come to them because they were second rate, second class. They didn't belong in the, in the first place. And so Jesus, by, you know, think about it. Jesus could have gotten so bogged down on the details of telling her about this feud and how ridiculous it is and how about, you know, there's plans that are bigger than a guy named Jacob and a guy named David. There's, a, there's much bigger plans but he doesn't. He doesn't get bogged down arguing with this woman. What does he do? He invites her deeper into the story of God. And he says it's about a gift-giving God that desires to give this woman living water so much that he had to walk 30 miles to tell her about it. Not to tell anybody else, just her. See, I don't know about you, but when we think about our lives living in God's story and, and, and lives being changed, it's because when we truly find who we are in God's story, in his act of redemption in the world, of reconciliation for the world, 
we understand that there is no other plan that is this big. There's no other plan that says, I don't care what you eat, what you dress like, what you smell like, where you come from, where your past is, what you do, what you don't do, who you hang out with. I am for you. And I'm going to die so you know it. There's no other plan that big, right? So often, maybe, maybe you and I, we haven't come up with our own Messiah story and make up a reinterpretation of scripture where your Messiah is going to come and just rescue you and not the other people. But don't, but don't you and I, don't, don't, don't we come up with our own little rescues? Our method, our, our ways of dealing with things, Right? Like super good ideas, like avoidance, passive aggression, like shame, you know, um, like harm. Like these, all these really good methods, right? Or some of them, we, do, we don't, we just, we just completely lie to ourselves that everything's okay. All these great tahebs. And God says, really? Those plans... Those little, tiny things, you're willing to settle for those in the midst of this great big thing? The best part about this, too, is he doesn't even chastise her for her story. He doesn't chastise her for, for, her, for uh, telling the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing. What does he do? He says, oh, man, I got a gift for you. Farther into the mingling of these two stories, I don't think she's convinced yet that this Jewish man who's not supposed to be talking to her but is, doesn't want to fight, doesn't want an argument. And, and so, you know, she tries to, to get him into another debate. But this time it's not, about a, it's not about a plan. It's about a place. And Jesus responds with the same sort of reminder about that. And, and this is the next reason that lives get changed when our story lives in God's story. Uh, and the next thing I want to invite you to write down is this. Lives get changed because God's story is bigger than any place. God's story is bigger than any place. See, in verses 20 through 26, she engages Jesus with this another hot topic of debate between the Jews and the Samaritans. Essentially, where should you go to church? That's the debate. The Samaritans went to church. They worshiped on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. And the Jews worshiped in a place called Jerusalem. And they both said, you worship in the wrong place. You go to the wrong church. You got to worship some other place. And Jesus uses the same tactic as before. He doesn't answer her question. He doesn't berate her. He simply says, a time will come and has now come when worship is bigger than a place. When worship is about a posture of your heart and about who you're worshiping. See, Jesus is trying to help her understand that, that it's not about where, it's about who. Some of us get so weighed down that we need to be in this place or that place to really worship God. Or if we really want to experience God, then we go to this one place where we sit and we do our thing. And that's where I really experience God. And that's a lie. Because God doesn't live anywhere that you're not already at. Because if you are in here today and you are a Christ follower, the God of the universe goes with you. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead 
goes with you everywhere you are. And so we maybe don't say, well, you know, I mean, maybe some of us do, like, oh, if you really wanted to worship, you'd go to Beach Point. You know, may, may, hopefully you don't say that. Please don't ever say that, okay? But, but, but hopefully you don't get bogged down in this, in this church thing. Maybe you do. Maybe these denomination things you get bogged down in. But don't you, get, don't you get bogged down like, oh, well, that's like my time and my place where I spend time with God. Like, that's the place where I do it. I don't, don't, you, don't we do that? Like, oh, th- this is my space. This is my, this is my, my, my God space. This is my God time. And God's like, I'm spirit. I, I'm, ev- I'm everywhere. Why, why are you settling for this small space and small time when the God of the universe says to you, I retreat with you everywhere you are. I am with you, even to the ends of the age. In between these two debates, there's this moment that the woman has to really decide whether or not she's going to keep listening, keep engaging in this conversation, and and allow this, this intriguing encounter to be something more. And it's when Jesus takes kind of the debates, kind of the, the theology debates, and he makes it real. And all he does is ask her a question. Hey, go get your man. And then she's like, I don't, I don't have a husband. And then, he, and then he just literally takes all of her secrets and is like, yeah, it's right there. Now, I don't know about you, but if some random person walks up to me and knows all this stuff about me and tells all my stuff like that, that I know, um, he, and he's like, hey, how are you? Here's all your terrible things about you. Have a good day. I'd be like, you too, never going to speak to you again. Okay? That's terrifying. And yet, why? What, why does she stay? You know, we're not told in the text, but I think she starts to get something. Something happens in her, and she, she sees something bigger than what she's done. She sees something bigger than who she is, right? She even says, oh, I see you're a prophet. It's this power that Jesus has. And essentially what Jesus does is he throws her reputation out in the open, puts it on the table. The crazy thing, though, is the thing I love about Jesus, the the reason, man, he's just so good, is Jesus does the exact same thing for her. Right now we know he's the God of the universe, and he's not worried about what his 12 students that are bringing Chick-fil-A back to him think about him. He's not worried about that. But think about it. What does the scripture say? They all came back, and they're like, what? is he doing? But nobody wanted to say anything because they're all so brave. And um, what does Jesus do? In the, once the people come back, what is he doing? Everything he's supposed to not be doing. In fact, everything that he's doing puts him in a position to lose his authority as a religious teacher. So what does Jesus do for this woman while he's calling her out, her reputation out? 
he throws his reputation out too. You see, Jesus sees the trust or the curiosity of this woman that he's walked 30 miles to talk to. And while he put her reputation on the table for discussion, he doesn't stop there. He enters into the risk with her. See, this is the next thing that we see in this passage and the next reason that when our story lives in God's story, that lives can be changed. It's because we understand that God's story is bigger than any reputation. And this is the next thing I want you to write down. is that God's story is bigger than any reputation. The woman had this reputation so bad that she would wait till the worst possible time where there were no other people around to fetch water from the well. And this wasn't like a, hey, let me just go over there, you know, I'll just like turn on the hose and put some in the bucket and we'll go over. The well was about seven feet in that, you know, circumference. So, you know, seven feet from center to center. And it's about a hundred feet deep. And the buckets that they would use in the pulley system were about five-gallon buckets. So imagine going to Home Depot or Lowe's or wherever you go, get some five-pound buckets, put them on there, and then try to pull them up 100 feet full of water. This woman goes at the worst part of the day because her reputation is so terrible. She can't stand it any longer. She can't handle the the comments and the, the voices But at some point in the stories, intermingling, she sees this as inconsequential. She starts to understand that God's story is bigger than her shame, bigger than her past, bigger than how she might look being seen with him, bigger than what other people think of her, bigger than anything that she does well or or poorly, bigger than doing what she's supposed to be doing. So now let me flip that. When God's story lives in your story, lives are changed because the way you live your life, you understand that God's story is bigger than your shame and bigger than your past and bigger than your mistakes and bigger than how you might look if you're seen with that person you're not supposed to be or bigger than what people might think of you or bigger than any success that you might have, or bigger than doing what you think good Christians should do. See, when my story lives in God's story, lives get changed because the only yardstick of approval that counts is the one from the eternal God. No other measurement is important. See, that's what the woman did. I don't believe that she got over the shame of her actions just like that, right? Do you ever have these life, you know, these traumatic life choices that all of a sudden you're like, I'm good. No, none of us are like that. So I don't think she gets over it. I think she focuses on something different. She sees something bigger. She doesn't see the small mistakes that she's made. She sees the big God who can cover them. And what does she do? She walks right up to the leaders of the city and says, let me tell you a story about a guy who told me a crazy story about everything I ever did. 
So what does this mean for you and for me? What does it look like for you and for me to live this, live this passage out each day? Well, it's actually really simple. It's, it's just doing what the woman did. See, last week we began talking about a simple way to reach out to your neighbors and your 8 to 15. It's an acronym called BLESS. And, uh, and it's this. And, you know, the first four, we talked about those last week. And it's, you know, begin with prayer. God, who do you want me, who do you want me to reach out to? Listen. By the way, it's really interesting. What does Jesus do before he speaks in any of these encounters? Listens. Stop talking at people. No one needs another Christian talking at them. Please, for the love of God, stop. I'm serious. Stop. Listen. Eat some food. We're good Baptists. We love ourselves some food. Let's eat. And then figure out ways to serve them. And then today, share God's story. Share God's story. We walked through those first four this last week and today. After you've began with prayer and spent time listening and, and eating together and served them, find a way to share God's story in the midst of that. This is really the last thing I want you to write down in, in our response today. Tell someone how God showed up in your story. Tell someone how God showed up in your story. That's it. And look at how the woman did it too. She didn't, she didn't share any fancy theology. She didn't give any arguments or apologetics. Not that there's anything wrong with that. All she simply did was she said, let me tell you like 15 words about a guy who showed up in my life one day. I get asked all the time, why are you a Christian? I get asked that all the time. Why not this or why not that or... And you know what I say? You know what I'd say in that moment? I don't, I don't tell them some fancy theology or because Beach Point Church is the best or whatever. All I say is because on February 15th, 1995, I felt a love so unlike anything I'd ever heard of. And a love showed up in my life unlike anything I'd ever experienced that the only logical explanation is that love is bigger than any human experience I could have. Done. That's it. That's all there is to it. It's not my job to convince them. It's not my job to get them to make a decision to follow Christ. That's God's job. It's my job to share what God did in my life. It's my job, my job, my job, my job to share how God showed up. And it's your job too. What would it look like if we began to bless our small relational world? I mean, what would it look like if each of us understood that, that our story, living in God's story, is bigger than anything we, else we could share? What would it look like if the 700 adults and the 150 kids of Beach Point told their stories to their small relational world and God actually moved in their hearts and they began to follow Christ? Like, what would happen if just one person from those 850 peoples, 8 to 15, made a decision to follow Christ. I'll tell you what happened. A lot of eternal change. It's that simple. And what does the scripture say happening with these men and women? And they asked him to stay. And many others believed. 
not because of someone else's experience, but because they met the same God. But it all started with these simple words. Come, come meet a guy who told me everything I ever did. Changed a whole city. No debates, no correcting theology, no argument. And if you're serving them and eating with people and, and listening to them, isn't a simple story like that just going to come out naturally about who you are? The band's going to come back up, and as they do, I'm just going to challenge you to reflect with the first step, which is begin with prayer. Ask God, God, who put the face on my mind? Who do you want me to share your story with? And begin the long work of loving your neighbor and rediscovering the true art of neighboring. Pause now and reflect.